Welcome to the podcast that's designed to fuel your success in selling technology solutions. I'm your host, Josh Lopresto, SVP of Sales Engineering at Tolaris, and this is Next Level Biz Tech. Hey, everybody, welcome back here. Uh, we're kicking off a special series of episodes. This one is titled Business Blueprints Lessons from Leaders. So who better to have on than our Chief Revenue Officer, Mr. Dan Foster. Foster, welcome, sir. Hey, Mr. Lupresto. Thank you for having me. Good to and, see you. Uh, good to see you, too. I, I, I want to kick this thing off. I want to go into some backstories. You know I love windy paths, my favorite part of this is hearing everybody's journey. Yes, we know you as chief revenue officer now, and maybe we can get a little later to what that means, but walk us through just your path. How did you get here? How did I get here? Well, well, you can see I'm in my office, so it was pretty easy this morning. Uh, in fact, uh, as a worldwide traveler, I guess I could give you a very circuitous route, but I'll start out with I'm in Japan. I graduated from college. And I've maxed out my credit cards. In fact, I'm uh, hanging out with my girlfriend, now my wife. She was in a semester abroad. And, you know, I get in a job in investment banking. And you're supposed to wait for the entire summer. And you're supposed to be, maybe backpack around Europe. Well, I, I got to go get a job because credit cards are maxed. Mommy and daddy aren't paying any bills for me. So I actually go out and get a summer job. Well, that summer job lasted 10 years and uh, had a real fun time learning along the way. Started a consult. I was employee number three at a consulting firm. And one of the guys who started it eventually became dean of the Harvard Business School. So we're growing internationally, uh, competing with the likes of McKinsey and Bain. In fact, rating them for new hires. We knew we ranked when we got a cease and desist letter. Um, <laughs> So fast forward 10 years and I'm sitting in India while working on a joint venture. And I realized, Josh, at that point, it's going to be hard to have a family if I'm literally if I'm living on flying so much that, you know, maybe I go by and go through the cul-de-sac. You can do the math there. But effectively, what happened was I jumped off in uh, Denver. I'm in Denver and I go. We get a uh, startup some venture capitalists put me into and we go public. It's in this whole internet economy. And they end up funding me to go run a little business in, of all places, St. Louis. So we're seven months in St. Louis. We end up merging with a company that I think a lot of the channel people out there know called Megapath. At that point in time, we were two and a half million in revenue. So we took Megapath, grew them from two and a half million through organic growth, M&A, up to about a half a billion dollars. Wow. And I came in and out of that. But a, a funny little story is, just to jump ahead, I'm uh, then at another startup just a few years back, as you recall, and we sold it to Ericsson. And who, who of all people do I get to actually help me sell this idea of the channel into Ericsson because they they just don't have the channel. They don't know of the channel. There's a whole backstory there. But I get Ad, the Adam Edwards to come on and help me validate the channel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going all the way to the the group of, uh, uh, it's called the technology group within Ericsson. Eventually, we got to go to Borea and we convince him to go into the channel. Uh, Adam and I were actually quoted in a Wall Street Journal article about a week 
before I, oops, came here to work for Adam. So it was a little awkward. Wall Street Journal featuring Adam and I. And the next thing you know, I'm over at uh, our partner there. So that's how I got here. I love it. Just say I was quoted in Wall Street Journal once. Nobody needs to know where, how, why. It's all yeah, different. exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I, mic drop. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, over the path, right, over the path, this journey, there's had to have been some, some pivotal moments. So, so help us understand what are, what are just a couple, a couple of these pivotal moments for you over the years? To, uh, yeah, pivotal moments in a career, a lot of them, but uh, I'll, I'll try to boil it down. Probably maybe, you know, off the cuff here, probably one of the funnier pivotal moments was not your traditional one. It was, my, my buddy, uh, in fact, the guy I grew up across the river from is managing this band Fish. And we're out. Uh, in fact, they're growing. Nobody knew them at the time. I, you know, they had a small following, mid-90s, late-90s. And uh, we go out and check out a band, it's a band by the name of Dave Matthews. And uh, nobody knew who they were. In fact, they hadn't signed a contract with Electra yet. And so I go home. And I'm like, hey, John needs help managing, you know, fish is becoming a full-time job. They've got a couple other acts that they may want to help manage. And my wife's like, are you kidding me? You think you're going to become a rock manager when, you know, we've got kids and blah, blah, all the rest going through. I was like, okay, so that's pivotal number one. Pivotal moment number one. Probably weren't expecting that, Josh. No, I did not. But uh, no, but really... Um, what it was is it was hanging around early on some of these uh, academics that were focused on growth. Clay Christensen, a uh, gentleman right out of Salt Lake City, esteemed uh, academic and life coach, even at the towards the end of his uh, life. He wrote an Innovator's Dilemma, and we built a practice around that. Marco Ian CD, a lot of the guys that Kim Clark, the that that whole group, it gave us this growth bug. You know, like I was focused on it. And, you know, we, we did a lot of operations, but it was really those really interesting seminars that we'd go to monthly that talked about these high performing businesses and the productivity that they were getting out of these businesses. You know, it's interesting. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I didn't set out to be a salesperson, but one of the guys I got to see uh, talk in a wine cave actually right up north of here in Napa Valley Daniel Pink. He's now he's a very well known author at this point. He wrote Drive, but he also wrote a book to sell as human. And it was interesting because here I was hanging out with these academics, but really, in fact, Pink talks about this in his book. There was none of these elite business schools were studying sales as a function. You know, you've got finance, you got, I mean, I got to take accounting with this guy, Bob Kaplan, who's like the king of activity based costing. But nobody was focused on sales as a uh, as a uh, enabler in the business schools. And it was really folks like our tech advisors and folks out in the really street smarts doing it. So it was pretty exciting to be part of it. So uh, I want to talk about, you know, I think the one thing I've always admired about you is just when I think I'm looking out far enough, you're going, no, 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 no. Let's look a little bit further. Right. So you've always had this great visionary mindset. Uh, walk me through what is your long-term vision for driving revenue growth in our industry? Well, you know, what's interesting, Josh, is this is a five, 5.4 trillion, depends on who you want to talk to, but the ICT market 
is just massive. It's massive. But what's interesting is increasingly, in fact, as you know, our tech, uh, our tech advisory, our new tech trends report talks about this. Increasingly, customers are looking to a third party to really say, how should I go about this? How should I think about this digital transformation? So when I think about how we need to drive the business, it's really, how do we make our tech advisors look smarter in front of their customers through enablement methods, a lot of the stuff that you do, Josh, and your teams and the whole business. But it's also really looking at that as a buyer journey to say, where are they going to be in five years? What are they going to be doing in five years? You know, interestingly enough, our, our background and network really enabled us uh, as the burgers to add fries and shakes. And now there's whole different meals that are being considered, right? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, in fact, I love the, you know, we've gone through the pivot, but I love the pivot stories of our tech advisors. And that's what you have to keep in mind. Think about Stuart Butterfield and what he did at Slack or, you know, we talked about Howard Schultz and Starbucks, you know, going from espresso machines, you know, selling machines to this. And our technology advisors have done that pivot. They focused on, you know, they were selling some of them. You and I both know a few of them. They were selling circuits a few years ago and they pivoted yeah. to hit on that focus of the CEO challenge, revenue generation, productivity, brand experience. It's those things. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so you get to travel and talk to a lot of these partners. You're at the events, right? Whatever it might be, so you get to see. All right, here's what a successful partner looks like, right? So taking into consideration, we've got this big audience of entrepreneurs. What do you think? All of these guys and gals that have built their business. What are the top couple strategies that you believe were most successful? Um, you know, while they've built businesses and and you've built businesses, is there is there some overlap there? Yeah. You know, it's uh, one, of, one of the sayings I heard long ago was strategies, what you don't do. <laughs> and if you think about that, it's going to come down to this idea. In fact, I'm going to give you a little bit of a story. But uh, so I'm sitting in London with this guy, Kim Clark, and uh, you know, we're in downtown London with this company, Unilever. Unilever makes tea, toothpaste, ice cream, uh, they they own like Fendi, all these brands. In fact, it's much larger than Procter & Gamble, but uh, we we think about Unilever as this kind of small European company. And he's sitting there with this guy, basically the CEO uh, of uh, their personal products division. I got to spend a year in Paris, a little known fact, working underneath him as a consultant for their shampoo and deodorant. So I'm actually a I used to be a shampoo expert. So anyways, <laughs> here we are in London. And Kim basically says to this guy, Perry, listen, with all you're trying to do, you need to go after two key principles, focus and discipline. And so, you know, it was this seminal moment where he realized they're trying to do too much and they wanted to look at their innovation portfolio, but he took that. And so here I am. We jump on a plane. In fact, you know, on that trip, I got to take the Concorde uh, because I needed to be back in the States. And I'm literally the next week at Cummins Engine Company, great company out in Columbus, Indiana. And here Kim Clark is again. He's talking to Tim Salso, the CEO. And he again talks about they're trying to do too much in this idea of focus and discipline. So why am I so 
so focused on, so uh, enamored with this. In fact, I'm going to bring in uh, the great German-American architect, Mies van der Rohe, his, his design philosophy, less is more. And so Kim would recite that, less is more. In fact, it goes back to this idea. I mean, Tim Ferriss in his four-hour work week is simplifying the focus. And that's what I see with our technology advisors who are incredibly successful. They've designed a approach in their business that is sometimes bootstrapping. They're total risk takers. Sometimes they're cowboys and cowgirls. But really what they've done is they've focused on a singular model and then they build that up as a base. Does good. that make sense? Good, good. Yeah. You know, we, we had um we had a CEO on here of, of one of our major suppliers, and I said, you, you've been instrumental in the contact center industry. What's the what's the good and the bad that you've seen our partners do that if you could change it, what what would you? And and that was exactly that. It was partners yeah. become really successful. They do this one thing and then they go, Oh my gosh, I could do all these things. And then and they're not wrong, right? They're entrepreneurs, they can get it done, they can figure it out. But when they focused it and narrow it back, yeah, um, they saw a massively, massively successful partners. So no, couldn't yeah. yeah, less is more. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about leadership here a little bit, right? So I know you've you've been part in kind of building some large companies, uh, if I remember right, hiring to the tune of what was it 80, 80 salespeople a month at some point, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. At one point, yeah. So so that's I, that's I mean my team did just to be clear, like yeah. uh, you, can you imagine the interviewing that you would do? But we had we had eight talent acquisition people on in my group, well, HR working for my dear friend, Linda, but uh, yeah, crazy. So, so let's, let's yeah. talk about that. Let's talk about building an innovation mindset. So as you're, as you're hiring, as you're bringing on leaders, as you're, as you're doing all of those things, why is it so important to have an innovation mindset when we're talking about growth? Yeah. I mean, first off, it's so critical because our industry has never moved faster. And so you have to be, you know, this idea of the pivot, whereas you've got to be focused and disciplined. You also have to be looking around the corner. And so what I find is building a team of diverse thinkers. Like I look for when I'm building a team and I think we're there today, Josh, I think about, you know, you, your colleagues, you know, the, the broader team that we have here, it's uh, first off hiring, to your point, hiring is the hardest thing you do. I, I think you, you know, you've shown a lot of leadership and really built a team. And I think you understand this, which is hiring is so critical because you're figuring out what chemicals to put into this to make this new compound called growth. And in doing that, you know, you've got to you got to set out some big hairy goals to say, you know, how do we own a sector or you know, what are the three steps ahead that we need to be thinking for the partners to be successful in front of their customers? To do that, to do that, you need a diverse set of thinkers first off. So, you know, I mean, it, obviously with you, you know, I always make sure my team has smarter people than me. I'll <laughs> take it. That's I'll the golden. It. Yeah, I make sure, you know, you I, I take an IQ test, personality test. And I mean, it's not a high bar here, but uh, so... No, but I think diverse sets of thinking really bring to bear kind of that innovator's mindset. That's good. Uh, uh, all right, let's. So, so part of this part of the series is that 
I want partners to to hear and understand not just the good, but the bad, the really hard stuff as well. So talk to me about a significant challenge that you faced at a previous company, at this company, anywhere, right, from a revenue growth perspective and how you turned it into an opportunity. Hmm. I got like, how, how long does this podcast go for like four hours? I got a few of them. So uh, no, I, I got a simple one. I got a simple one, which is, so I come back. So I told you the story of Megapath up to a, you know, half a billion. We actually sell off a few of the assets. I leave, go do this solar city, Tesla energy thing. And I come back, they bring me back, board brings me back. I go as president and uh, it was in a decline. So uh, 10% revenue reduction, uh, you know, importantly, I did a baseline when I got in and the customer sat and the employee sat wasn't good. Okay. It wasn't good. I'll just leave you. I don't want to run numbers here, but it was not good. So I'm a month into the new gig and I take a call. Actually, I got a message. So uh, I get the message and I call this guy, Max. He's a New Yorker. I call him back and it's one of these hot ones. So as a president, you know, the escalations I'm going to get, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. are not the ones who want to call up and say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. So he says, listen, after 11 people, 11 calls, you're the only one to call me back. So he says our culture is basically sideways. And uh, he says, listen, I'm an investor. You hosed up one of these companies I'm with. Uh, you know, you I forget what it was. We didn't do the install. But I really remember clearly what happened. He said, I want to take you on a cultural journey. I want you to meet with the CEO of a company that I help fund. And if it's okay, I'll meet you out in Vegas, maybe two, three weeks. You figure out what works. We're going to go to a company called Zappos. So I got to go out and meet Tony Shea and his team. And it was the culture of the customer. And I realized at that point in time that with our sale, uh, our employee engagement in the tank, our customer saw, sat not in a great spot. It's even hard for me to say that. Customer satisfaction at a, at a, a not a great level, we needed a new program. And so we did this whole best over easiest program. And I learned it from the, the uh, actually the HR person out at Zappos. I kept in touch with her for a bit. And we uh, it worked. I mean, two years later, what we realized is by focusing on employee engagement. That means we had better tools so they could solve customer problems. In fact, in my staff calls, Josh, uh, I haven't tortured us like this, but we would call into each of the groups. So imagine the accountability in your org. So when you call into billing, you call into support. And the first time it happened, we did it impromptu. So I didn't prep any of my folks. I said, hey, we're going to have it. We're going to go off script today, folks. We're going to call into a company called Megapath. And everybody was first off in their chairs and not excited by the result. Two years later, we grew that business 10% quarter over quarter, almost diametrically opposed to when uh, I got back there. Two years in, I had a great team. Uh, we ended up doing like first SD-WAN service provider with UCAS as a bundle. It was fun. And we, unfortunately, we ended up selling the business because we we're having such a good time. Yeah. But it was focus on employee engagement and really through tools that help their customers. Love it. Good stuff. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, mentorship. 
So, you know, it's been, it's been awesome to kind of be surrounded by you, right. From, from how you've helped me grow personally, mentorship, but let's talk about, you know, as you've mentored others, how does that influence your approach, uh, you know, as a chief revenue officer and maybe strategies for growth that we just might not realize? Hmm. Well, one is, uh, you know, we talked about that earlier. We've got to be looking out around the corner to say, what is 2X and 5X look like? And then helping, you know, the team look through and manage to a framework that gets you there. So what I, I had a, I had a CEO that I worked for for quite a long time, and he taught me that idea of a framework. So we have the today the uh, objectives and key results framework. Works great, right? Gives you that ability to see out over a year. You then put it out two, three years. And what you can do is, from a mentoring perspective, is build frameworks and management systems that you, you know, as we think about five years out and Talera's having you know, taken over the free world. It's those frameworks that we are enabling through that mentorship. Uh, it's painting bold visions and building alignment around that. It's uh, it's also, you know, not answering, but asking the questions in pushing guys like you to go out and kind of say, here are a couple options. And then it's finally, what I like doing is it's never bringing, uh, you know, teaching folks, to bring resolution plans. There's a lot of issues in business, really pushing your team to say, well, come to me with three, two options. Don't come to me with issues. Come to me with the issues, frame it in a way that you can then paint a picture of here's how we're going to affect change in a positive way. And it shows that you've thought it through. Love it. Love it. Uh, all right. Let's, let's, Keep going on this change um, mindset. So if you look at, like you said in the beginning, uh, it, we're at a spot where it's just never changed. Technology's never changed this fast. And I think we just, we always seem to say that. I think the people before us said that, the people after yeah. us are going to say that. But it really does, at least if we zoom out over the last 20 years, it's changing now faster than ever. So how do you stay ahead of the curve in that? from a revenue generation, from a sales strategy perspective, do the basics come into play? Do you use some of these advanced tactics and strategies? What are your thoughts around that? Well, we can't give all of our secrets out, right? But like water it down a little bit. <laughs> no, um, first off, the, the idea of how you execute is foundationally in the basics. You know, you learn fundamentals around follow-up and the, the focus and you put in programs to go do this. Sure, the the technology, you know, Moore's law is out the door, I think, right? You know better than I. But in digital transformation is coming. What's really interesting is where we are at, we're at a crossroads. We're enabling these technology advisors to compete against the global system integrators. You know, that what I know the team jokes about not having lost to Deloitte in uh, you know a couple of years or something like that. The technology advisor is really what we're pushing to also stay up to uh, stay up to uh, what's the right word here? Stay up to almost a new standard for themselves to say how do I enable that digital transformation? The digit think of it going from selling a network and you and I know a few of these partners. Selling a network 
or even selling circuits to now, not just selling contact center, but full on from website all the way through to support the digital transformation. And I love uh, Diane Hinchcliffe, who, as you know, drove a lot of the thinking behind the uh, technology report, talks about this idea of DX, digital experience. So when you think about the technology advisor pushing the CEO to think through the brand and customer experience, it's now become more than ever a full digital experience. So what do we do? We gotta, we've got to have a buyer journey for the technology advisor who needs to learn, hey, it's not just fries with that burger, but what does it actually mean to have identity management or zero trust network access together with that network? So we've got a lot to deploy from a sales enablement perspective. And, uh, you know, it's you guys do it every day, Josh. I mean, you see that it's critical to keep doing what we're doing around the sales enablement function for those technology advisors. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, like you said it there a little bit, the, the hardest part about this is finding the opportunity to let your customers know all these things that you can do, right? So there's strategies around QBRs, you know, opportunities for that where it's less tactical and more strategic, but it's just such a different problem than it was years ago. Now there's just so many things that you can sell to these end customers um, for the, the, the advisors. It really opens up that door of, you know, what I, I can do everything at this point yeah, almost right. that you need as a customer. If you're buying it, I can help you with that. That's right. That's right. But, you know, you, you've got to be careful too, right? Like you've got to not come across as though you're trying to sell them a catalog. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, final couple thoughts here. So, so if we look back as you kind of reflect a little bit, right, your career from a revenue perspective, revenue officer, what does, what does true success mean to you? Right. And how do you, I guess, how do you measure that? Well, you know, I'm a numbers guy, so we we measure it in numbers, but, and I love winning. Um, but actually, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to rely on Clay Christensen again, who uh, actually in the later part of his life wrote a book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And sure, I measure it as success. I measure it as really my ego is in seeing people be successful. Like it was so fun. Uh, I've got a guy who uh, worked in LA in a past life we talked about. He had seven people and I knew the guy scaled. And three years later, I check in with him and he's got he's got 800 people working for him. So I love seeing those success stories. In fact, for me, success was a little different. I had a uh, son diagnosed with autism. And uh, right around that same time, I had a new son born I just lost my dad and I'm in one of these amazing, uh, amazing jobs. In fact, just scaling up, but I realized I needed to be around more. So that was an 80 hour a week across the peninsula. And I, I took a step back and I took, uh, I went back to a business that offered me a job so I could be local. And, you know, I mean, the, the idea of time as a currency, I wouldn't have been able to, coach my kids in soccer. Uh, and so when I, sure, I, I had a heck of a time building a framework for go to market for that business, but it was hard to step away, but balance is key. Uh, that's what I've learned is the measure of success is back to that idea of how do you measure your life? 
in the near term, I obviously measure, as you know, I measure every month, every yep. every week. We know that. Those meetings, do you? Right? <laughs> I don't miss much on that front. It's my, you know, as you know, I, you know, I trained as an engineer and a quantitative economics guy coming out of college. I left that in the box, mind you, coming out of college. I think the engineering degree never actually got cracked. Um, but, uh, you know, that's how I think about success. Yeah, it's good. It's good balance. Uh, if I look back, you know, or, or, or been doing a lot of episodes here, right? As we wrap up season two, yeah, um, doing a phenomenal job. Thanks. And, and and as we look back, there are some key trends, um, right? From from the leaders like yourself that we've chatted with, balance is key. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you can't keep it in balance. And I know there's those people yeah. that are like, oh, if you love what you do, you know, no, balance matters. You have to yeah. be purposeful about balance. So awesome call. That's right. Per personal leverage. You know, I, yeah. I use that. I, I, I use that. I learned that more. I learned that later in life. Yeah. personal leverage, which is, you know, achieves balance. Yeah. Uh, final, final thoughts here. We're going to, we're going to look out to the future a little bit. And I know, again, we've said it, we're, we're probably a broken record about uh, it just changes so fast, but um, any emerging trends, anything that you think that if for the partners that are listening out there that you really want them to pay attention to? I mean, there's the obvious ones you like, I'm on stage pitching AI and DX and, cyber but i i, I want to go back to this idea that you know we we went out and interviewed 150 cxos so there are cios chief digital officers and increasingly they are buying through the channel so when i look out sure there's lots of technology you and we are going to be on top of the next one but i think the most interesting trend is the fact that the affinity towards this channel is only accelerating the propensity for success is really the cxos these are larger corporations but importantly those mid-market have validated and are doing nothing other than running to our technology advisors for advice and to buy services yeah, yeah it's it's such a it's a great point and it's such a you know, like like you mentioned earlier with the Ericsson story, but if we just flash back and flash back and flash back further, how many conversations have we had to be in where we've had to convince people why the channel is important yeah. as a vendor, yeah. why you would want? And now just that, that rate of adoption of selling here versus trying to sell it direct as a vendor. I mean, I love, obviously, selfishly, we love that, that trend, uh, but it proves the value. It proves the value in a customer's eyes, and there's so much more room, That's so right. much runway. I love it. Yeah, and there'll be some transactional stuff. Look, things are going to go through marketplaces, transactional, but that's why the complex sale starts with the technology advisor and teams like you. Yeah, love it. All right, Dan, I'm questioned out, man. I really appreciate yeah. you doing this with me, buddy. No, I love it. Uh, thanks, and I love the new background there too. That is, uh, looks like an anaconic chamber or something to that effect. No echoes in here, baby. Yeah. Love that. All right. Hey, man, that wraps us up for today. Thanks, everybody. I'm your host, Josh Lopresto, SVP of Sales Engineering at Tolaris, Dan Foster, Chief Revenue Officer. This kicks us off with business lessons. Until next time. Next Level BizTech has been a production of Tolaris Studio 19. Please visit Tolaris.com for more information.